Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape, Conversations on Mythology on www.storyarchaeology.com. Today I get to talk with artist and illustrator Shona MacDonald. Shona is a talented artist and illustrator who has beautifully and intuitively brought to life some of the most dramatic and fascinating female characters from Irish mythology in her artwork. But that's enough for me, Shona. I'd rather you would introduce yourself, please. From Scotland originally, but I spent most of my adult life in Ireland and been living in County Waterford the last 10 years. You know, I've looked at so much of your art- artwork and I think it's beautiful, but how did you come to choose a career in art? Well, I, I mean, I realised that I had to go to art school for a start because when I realised that I wouldn't have time to spend time drawing or making things if I chose anything else. Um, like, I didn't know exactly what form of art that it would take. I just liked making things and drawing and making up stories and things. So they do a general year at first. So I went to Edinburgh College of Art and uh, tried out a bunch of different things, like sculpture and illustration, performance costume, animation. Well, I, I was just going to say, I really didn't want to have to choose between them, but in the end I chose animation because it was the most exciting. I, did, I wasn't expecting that I would choose that, but yeah, it was, it was really fun. Yeah, animation, I suppose that involves using a lot of different methods. And you mentioned sculpture too. What sort of sculpture work were you doing? Well, we used clay, sort of traditional sculpture, clay and casting, uh, making stuff from wire. Oh, we tried stone carving. I was terrible at that. (laughs) The reason I asked you was because I spent years working with uh, clay and worked on sculpting figures. I started, I was useless at throwing. I had studied pottery for years and ran, you know, I I ran pottery for schools and worked in pottery. You know, I I was one of the things I I did most. I just couldn't get the hang of throwing. I couldn't make it work. Oh, I don't know. But sculpting in clay, you could it was just creating something with your hands became so tactile. Well, I've never tried throwing actually. I've only ever tried making, yeah, as you say, like making with the clay. So, what attracted you about animation? <laughs> well, yeah, I thought originally that it was going to be really boring and that you know it would just take forever having to draw all the frames, but. It just wasn't. It, what I found exciting was that you could essentially bring your drawings to life and in quite a short space of time, really. Like, I remember we had, I can't remember what the computer was called, but you could just do a few frames and just loop it and it would just be playing on and on, um, you know, creatures scurrying past the screen. Yeah, so it was really, it was really exciting seeing them come to life and I suppose having the control over the story Nothing is in that picture, in the animation, unless you put it there. There's something saying, one of the lecturers saying that to us. Although I said something else to one of the lecturers, I said to him, like, oh, it's like bringing them to life. And he laughed at me as if it was just something ridiculous to say, but that is what, what animators do. Like, I, I don't, don't really believe they're alive, you know, but it just... I think that's what like you're them. telling me, the story of a, an artist who is a storyteller. And that's what I see in your work, you see, and that's what you're telling me now. Look, I have 
I have the same experience. I work with puppets and my storytelling for young children is all with puppets. But the truth is that puppets only work if you believe in them. They're, they're not things on your hand. They are the characters and your friends that you're talking to. And if you believe that and they become alive and while you're working with them, they're as alive as you are and they're telling their own story. <gasps> And I never quite know with my puppets which ones are going to speak to me. I might buy a beautiful new puppet and it doesn't say a word. But it's exactly the same as you're, you're imbuing your characters with life and then they take over, don't they? I think an animation probably does the same thing. Yeah, I would agree, actually. Because the character um, from a degree show, Grub, he, like, I sort of meant for him to be a little bit meaner somehow, but then it just wasn't that and I couldn't... Yeah, he, he was more sort of innocent and curious when when actually came to animate it. And actually just thinking about, you know, I just said I don't really think they're like, but when I was making him, so I made his body from the skeleton from wire and then the, his insides are stuffing, but felt like there had to be a heart. So I gave him a little flower for his heart. Which obviously can't be seen because now we're looking for Well, I did get to see your brilliant animation, The Forest of Cake. With your permission, I'd like to put a link to it connected to this conversation. Is that okay with you? Oh, that was... If there isn't a link, it's hard to talk about because I think lots of people would enjoy this. The cat's brilliant. I really want to visit your library of perplexing perplexities. It was, <laughs> by the time I finished that animation, I really have to go there. And I do notice that you return to it in a picture from your exhibition. Gee, that's really a, well, a very observant of you to notice the library turning up at a later point. The other things I love is that the way you portray the cat, I can never quite work out whether he's predator or prey. And that's part of the story. But it's also, we discover that he is actually uh, kind of lost in the forest and the ending that that last second twist when the fish cabin falls back into the underworld forest it's so full of humor but it's saying so much and that cat is so alive you know that uh, he's certainly telling a story yeah i think what else i was saying before i thought that he was going to be a bit a little bit cheekier or, or meaner but he just he became it's just much more curious and sort of safe in his own little area. And then, but as soon as he gets out there, he gets sucked into the dangers of the forest. Actually, there was something I meant to happen in the tree. It meant for him to meet some creatures in there that were having a party that he had to escape from. But I didn't have time. But, um, <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, it, it, there's such a lot that happens and you feel he comes out slightly swaggery and cheeky but then encounters things that he doesn't understand you know I, I love the way you create awareness of two worlds and the borderland between them I mean the forest feel seems bizarre and yet is eminently relatable until the cats are rescued and carried up into an even stranger world with the fish vehicles sailing along what almost feels like an ordinary street scene with traffic. You know, and that becomes the ordinary world, which is actually more bizarre than the world we thought was ordinary in the underworld. Yeah, I, I thought it had a lot going on. Well, actually, to be honest, I didn't really... I'm really thinking, realising, or realised later on that the animation is basically about leaving home and going out into the world on your own becoming an adult but I didn't think about it in that way when I was making it. I think it is and that the thing is that the adult word is a 
actually more bizarre than the childhood world, only we're kind of used to it and we accept the bizarre qualities of things we do without thinking about it, that a child would feel really strange. And here we are sailing along in in a world that is actually totally bizarre. (gasps) I think you're quite right. Are you escaping or are you being rescued? There's a lot of questions that you could ask about it and Mm -hmm. there's a lot to think about. I think that's really why I liked it. But when we were commissioning our short animation, The Cats of Crookhorn, I tell you something, our budget wouldn't have stretched to cover work like that. It must have taken an age to create. Well, we had a year to do it, so it was a degree, my degree film. Actually, I suppose less than a year, but I was thinking about it over the summer and then it... Yeah, so it it took a year from yeah, the beginning to it being finished up, and so it was eight minutes, um, a, bit, a bit more than eight minutes of film. So yeah, there was a, a lot of, of work, and there's someone said to us, it wasn't a lecture, it was a talk that we went to, and he said, oh, you'll never have as much time as you do now to make work ever again. And I thought, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, I think, is absolutely true. You you used several different techniques in that animation, didn't you? There were several different techniques involved. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I chose... So at the beginning, there's um, paint. So I did that on the the light box, yeah, using acetate. And then there's a bit of cutout as well with the fish at the end. But the, the most, oh yeah, and you know, the main part of it really is the stop motion. But I suppose one of the reasons I love stop motion is, and I remember seeing, mm-hmm. like it was one of the older students had gone into the, the film studio and he had his set there. And the, when they're filming, of course, you've just got, like it's all dark and you've just got the lights shining onto the set. And as you go closer, you see it's this little world and it's just so exciting magical and it's so fun amazing and it doesn't really i know the words i'm using that's particularly descriptive but what you're communicating is just the enthusiasm and what her creative process yeah is. so i but I, I suppose i like being able to like i, I like to, the drawing and stuff is great and everything but when you actually create the when the puppet is sort of 3D and real in, in sort of 3D space as well. That's, I think that's quite exciting. And that's why I chose stop motion. And also you could, you know, you, you physically move them around the, the set um, and you see everything from all the different angles and you can see how, I, I think it's maybe easier in a way, although then you're, you're dealing with the, the physical problems of the joints maybe not moving as well as they could. and. Like I was just using wire, not those proper, you know, puppets where they have um, articulated joints and things now. But um... mm-hmm. well, it's it is impressive and it's thoughtful. It's funny but thoughtful at the same time. But I suppose we could, should go on to talk about some of your more recent work. Uh, I, w- I know I spent a lot of time talking about the animation because I think it's brilliant. Let's talk about some of your more recent illustrative work. I actually encountered your illustrations and kind of met you when my daughter brought the recent book Girls Who Slay Monsters to my attention. Now, she'd brought it as a Christmas present for her niece. As listeners to Story Archaeology will know, my colleague Isolde and I have spent years immersing ourselves in the stories as found in the early Irish texts. And when I saw some of your illustrations, I felt I recognised the characters. Yes, yeah, so 
I was approached by the publisher. She asked me if I would do the illustrations for a kids' book on on myth, and I thought I was already interested. And then I found out it was about goddesses specifically, and that it was more of a contemporary take on it. Yeah, so I, I was excited about the idea of creating the illustrations for them because I know that there's a lot of imagery out there already, but I thought that I could do something a bit different. So the, the oh yeah, so the book is uh, focusing on 24 characters from early Irish myth and they've been rewritten by Ellen Ryan. And uh, what I was asked to do was to create a portrait for each one. So it was quite specific. You had to see their face and have a sense of and what their power was. And I had been thinking about creating work to do with some goddesses before this, but I didn't know about all these different characters. I only knew, like I'd started to read about... Characters from early Irish story. Caeach and uh, Macha, just a few others. So I suppose it, it fitted, it suited me to... I was particularly interested because, as you might know, we've been running with Professor Ralph Kenner, with several other people involved in the group. We've been running a project to celebrate the female characters in early Irish mythology and to concentrate on how important and how major the parts in the stories that they play are. And yes, as the stories were told, particularly at the end of the 19th century, there was a need for a a national narrative. But the the, the roles of the women characters were kind of seen as subsidiary and kind of in a 19th, early 20th century, you know, way of looking at them. Their roles were always played down in the translations that were made. And we wanted to really look at what they actually did in the stories. And in fact, Ralph Kenner, as part of his studies of Irish mythology, he looks at it through mathematics. And he has proved mathematically that uh, the active interactions in Irish mythology between women greater than in any other major myth cycle. So we can prove that women in Irish mythology were really important. Uh, Anyway, back to your illustrations, because they spoke to me. Let's just look at one or two in particular. I mean, Brig, for instance, in early Irish textual stories, she only has a role in the Cathmagatura, the Battle of Moidura, as a grieving mother whose son, Ruathorn, is killed when he's a spy after promoting the destruction of a magical well of healing, which if he hadn't destroyed the well, he could have been healed by it himself. And therefore it's Brig who first introduces Keeney into Ireland. She was also a very important ancestor figure to Iron Age tribes in Ireland and England. And yes, you're right, she was the lady of high places, of brightness, the morning sun on the hills. You've really captured her in your illustration. That's the Breek I recognise. So what was in your mind as you created the image of Breek? Well, first thing, the illustration, it's was very much based on Ellen's version of the story. That's what I was sort of working with. If I'd have looked at that, I, would, I might well have said, this is an image of Brig. I thought it was lovely. Oh, I'm really glad you said that, because I was actually really worried. I thought, I, I wish I had more time to, to just read more and, you know, get a better, more well-rounded sense of who these character is. But not that it, it's not enough to read the text that I had. It's just that I know that this is a... Uh, mm. Character God has been around for so long, and I didn't want to do a disservice to you know by sort of putting something in that wasn't maybe I was unwittingly adding something in that I shouldn't have or something. But 
I could have, I just think maybe I could have added in more relevant things. What you caught was it's the, the strong browns and golds. You've got that feeling of sun on the hillside. Oh, how do I say it? It's a strong image. It's an evocative image. It, it feels as though it's coming from the landscape. But I felt I really wanted to you know, get that sense of light, like that she's bringing light mm. back and spring back and sun. And it's that turning point from just utter devastation to mm. feeling like, mm. well, hope. And I think that's the keening, even in the oldest story and the original story, which goes back well, more than a thousand years, uh, that she is crying for her son and yet she knows this is part of what will create the healing and bring back the prosperity and uh, fertility to the land. When Isolde and I did a couple of episodes on Brig and we kept going, the more we look for her and this continuation into the modern saint via an early Irish goddess, we can't find it. The only brig who actually exists in the stories is this one, but she is important. And it means that this character was far more important than maybe her one appearance in the story suggests, because she goes on and resonates with people until she becomes Ireland's greatest saint, female saint. She has to be important. That's the way her story has come down to us today. But I I'm curious. I always want to go back and find out where they came from. No, I suppose, I mean, I just have this sort of, I suppose, an illustration. It's like a stew and you've got to, yeah, adding more and knowing more is only going to help it. There are two ways of looking at the stories. I'm used to looking at textual stories. And in the textual stories, they are ancestor figures. They're really important. They're more than a thousand years old, those stories. But they've continued to be told. And later on, under Christianity, you know, people began to get used to the term goddesses. And Brig became Breed and became Bridget. And there are all sorts of folkloric links that join things up. So nothing is wrong. You know, my, my interest is working with the oldest versions of the stories because they're rich and remarkable. There's nothing that's wrong. They're all right. They're all different ways of looking at the same characters. So, uh, you know, that, that I think more reading and more exploration is always fun. That's all I know. Yeah. Actually, there was something else I wanted to ask you. Actually, I read a book recently and it was, it was a lady who she studies med- these medieval texts. Anyway, she, she was saying that these Irish myths are essentially just medieval fiction. I mean, I think that's what she was saying, but I, I, that's, how could that be true? <laughs> Is it an English book? Yeah, well, no, she's studying, right, they... I think she's actually working in England. Maybe. Well, they are definitely very early medieval, at least, for... Instance, the Kathmakaturit is a composite work compiled in, say, the 11th or 12th century, but from 9th century material. And uh, a lot of experts have suggested that the language of the poetic sequences could be far earlier, and uh, perhaps 7th century. Now, the earliest recension of the Tonbokunya is 11th century, but the poetic sequences there definitely have language dating from the 8th century. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that both pieces contain oral material from a much earlier period. Just the descriptions and some of the information that's given suggest that they they do contain much older stories, or they are based on much older stories. Of course, there are definitely 
also 15th century literary retellings, like the hilarious version of Fergus MacLager, the one that in translation might have inspired Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Now, these can be witty and delightful, containing occasional jokes we would still recognise today. But I'm afraid that under English colonisation over the centuries, early Irish stories were underrated. They just didn't fit into the popular neoclassical style. For instance, I'm afraid one English academic around the turn of the 20th century described them as low of tone and having no literary value whatsoever. What? Uh, so, yeah, you... I would disagree. Of course the stories were made up. They were the stories, the stories that people of the time enjoyed. The Siege of Troy was a story that was made up, but it's based on the times in which these stories were told. And it's the way they're told that tells us that they are old and they're much earlier than the high medieval period. Well, it's really interesting to hear you saying that. And I, I kind of suspected that was the case because when you th I was just thinking about the fact that, like, you know, uh, writing anything down stories, the oldest versions that we have on paper, like it was still, it was a massive undertaking. And you're not going to do that for something you're just making up. It's going to be something that's already important. I mean, I suppose every time they're told it's the time that they're being written down or spoken, they're going to change them and have an influence on them. Well, they go on as oral stories and they do change. Like, as I say, Brieg, uh, I feel she's really important because of the one thing she does in the old stories. But she's obviously so important that people have loved her ever since. So she changes with the time. She becomes a saint. She becomes, you know, lots of other things. And she's still revered and she's a modern healing saint today which is not much to do with how she began. It was to do with hospitality. Now it's to do with healing because that's what people need. You know, it's what she becomes, characters people love become what people want them to be and they change with the times. So, you know, the only reason that I don't call them gods or goddesses is because it carries a modern waiting. So they were like ancestors who were still available to people. So how would you... Yeah, it's interesting. And also, ancestor figures doesn't gender it either, which is maybe good. That's why I... There's no nothing wrong with calling them gods and goddesses, except then we think of classical ones. And Roman and Greek goddesses and gods work in different ways to the Irish yeah, ones. Yeah, I know. There's every, every person who tells, look, adapts it or is inspired by them or creates different illustrations, they're going to have their own take. That's why I like it. Culture heroes, in other words, people that you go on telling stories about because they did something that mattered to you. Let's look at some of your other illustrations. In that particular book, which is your favourite? Um, well, I don't know if I have a favourite, but I, one of the first ones I did was um, the illustration of Fand, which is looking directly at the viewer. And I suppose that's when I felt like, oh, I know this is going to work out. And I just liked that she was she had such a direct gaze. And well, in the story, she's a defender of animals, birds specifically. And so what appealed to you about Fan? Yeah, so she, so she ends up, yes, yes. So yeah, so it's Cahoon. So I was just thinking it's a hero of some kind and he's killing the birds and she stops him. Mm -hmm. And I suppose 
Yeah, uh, she is actually, you're absolutely right. And I I think it was her directness and her strength that really appealed. I mean, Fand is definitely an otherworld character. There's there's other versions of her characterised as sisters, uh, Befind and Liban. And their names mean beautiful tear or beautiful woman. And you're quite right that they, they may be, they're the symbolic of nature, but they're not ciphers. And they represent the beauty of the balance between this and the other world. And another thing, they can bring swift justice, just as Fand and Lee Bourne, as you mentioned, they, that's what they administer to Cahullan when he upsets the balance by shooting down the white birds who are other world messengers. They were on a job bringing a message and he shot them down because he thought it was sport. And so you're exactly right. You've caught her strength and determination. And those um, Fan, Liban, Befind, they're all uh, women who come from the other world and in a way they're messengers as well. They are the beauty of the other world manifest in this world, but they're carrying warning messages all the time. You know, you can't just say, oh, they're beautiful, isn't that nice? No, no, they, they are warning. They're always warning yeah. things. I suppose I like that, yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was that she had the power to stop them. Yeah, I suppose like that she has agency, that she not just yeah, she's not part of the scenery and um and actually Yeah, she's not just a pretty face. <laughs> the natural world being destroyed. That's something well I feel and mm. I wish that I could, you know, do something better. Mm. Again, because of the story where, you know, she becomes enamoured of Cahullan and Ema objects, you know, that, that Mananana has to wave a cloak in, in between them so that they won't meet again. That's not central to the story. You're right. The, what is central is that she is a messenger, her job is interrupted and her messengers are destroyed for sport. I think, I think you've just caught it. Having we've actually talked face-to-face -face on Zoom, do you mind me saying that the illustration of Fand reminds me a bit of you? Well, it, well it's not based on me, but well, actually with all of the, these characters, I, I did get people to model, well, not for all of them, but for most of them, because I knew that like, I couldn't just base it on myself because it would would all look a bit too similar but the person who modelled for this character um, was actually uh -huh. the cousin and what I did because I, I couldn't actually go to visit her to take a picture so I, I took I set up a camera and took a picture of myself doing the pose and then set a turn and then she did the same and she set back you know loads of images and <laughs> Well, maybe I caught a slight family likeness. It was just something that struck me. But in all these illustrations, I think what you're demonstrating, the illustration is indeed storytelling. It, it does carry the story. Yeah, I think so. One book that you illustrated I find particularly interesting was The Moon Spun Round, an anthology of Yeats's poetry. And when I first saw the book, I... Um, I was wondering about whether some of the poems might be difficult for a young audience. I think that, like, whilst they weren't written for children, that there's enough in them that they're very uh, visual and that like, you wouldn't need to know any of the references or anything to appreciate them. Because, I mean, I like, I didn't read them as a kid, but um, reading them, I hadn't studied Yeats or anything. I didn't know the, the background. And I think they're still really, really good poems without delving further so and I, I hope that well, the illustrations would also lead be a way in as well for and it, it to the for the children 
because the book was called the, the moon the moon spam round and i noticed that one of the poems was called the cat and the moon that's not an easy poem even for adults but i also noticed that you were including poems like The Cloths of Heaven, which is a lot easier. And I think there were a few other poems that are probably quite well known. Which other poems were included? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it was Noreen Doody who compiled them. And so I, yeah, I didn't choose the poems, but I did enjoy illustrating them. And um, it would be To a Child Dancing in the Wind, um, The Wild Swans, Cool, uh, hot, 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 free, I suspect. <laughs> oh, yes, that one actually, I did that one as a sample. That was, <gasps> yeah, I was just thinking, they are you're right, the, some of the poems are very visual. I, I, I always love the Cloths of Heaven, which is one of his earlier poems. I unfortunately have studied Yeats too much because I studied him for A level and at degree level, so perhaps I've overdone it a bit, but. The Cloths of Heaven, I always like. And I can remember one night somewhere, I think it was somewhere in France, and it was one of those wonderful nights where you're standing by the sea and the moon is out and it's really still, and you get the moon path over the sea. And all I could see was this great road stretching out across the sea, and suddenly the whole, the words of the Cloths of Heaven came into my mind as I'm you know, almost tempted to tread on the sea path and would at that moment it hold my weight? Uh, which, of course, it wouldn't. You'd just get wet. But at that moment, the, the tread softly because you tread upon my dreams came into my head and I thought, am I going to do it? And I thought, nah, I just get wet. <laughs> so, but which of the poems did you most enjoy illustrating? Well, that one I was a little bit worried because like, I'd, I'd heard of that poem and I'd read it, but I didn't remember that it was him. You know, I was that... Um ignorant I'm afraid of it so mm -hmm. I knew obviously the fact that I knew it it must be iconic so I was a bit terrified about illustrating that one but I think I liked illustrating I'd say often but to a child dancing in the wind was quite yeah it was very free I don't, don't remember having any problems really with that one it felt there's thing. lots of movement in that I mean you've well, no, maybe it probably made it easier for Well, you've me. got the motion in it. It's, it is almost a dance movement in itself. You can feel the movement in the poem. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, he is, he does create strong pictures in his work. And you're quite right. There is a danger of overthinking things, which I'm probably guilty, <laughs> guilty of. Because there's lots of different interpretations. And actually, like to The Stolen Child, that one I felt like, I could have made that one a lot darker, but of course the kids' book. But that was, I think, one one in particular. I felt like I don't know if this is the right approach, but yeah, it's again, it's one of his early poems, and uh, in some ways they 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 they're much more folkloric, and I think it is a little bit dark. But I, I like the way you did it. Anyway, look, I noticed that you also had a chance to illustrate uh, the top mark Aidena, you know, the Aidena Mither story. It's a fascinating story, but how did you feel about the role of Aideen in the story? Which, of course, is going to colour how you portray her. I mean, I did feel that she is she doesn't have too much agency, but I, I know that like Morizette did this version of the tale, and I know that she did add in, add she did create her so that she has more a little bit more control and um, 
than maybe in the ancient stories. It's, so, it is a difficult story. A lot of people say she just is a cipher. She Things just happen to her. She's turned into a purple fly. She floats around for a thousand years. She lands in a cup. She's born again. She grows up. And then two men argue over her. But it <laughs> but, uh, there's a lot more to it than that. But it, it was, I must admit, when I first read it, my favourite character in the story was actually Fuamnok. You know, the, the the first wife, the aggrieved first wife. And she's not just, I mean, she's a poet. She is a woman of stature, importance. Uh, they can't ignore her. She's far too important. She's no wicked stepmother and she only does what she's allowed to do by law. And under Irish law at that time, a second wife uh, could be accepted. But the first wife was allowed to, to say anything she liked or do anything as long as she didn't touch or harm the younger woman and she doesn't touch her she turns him you know she turns her by her words into a pool of water and when that dries up into a purple fly so she's obeying the rules but in fact well what in the story that Aidan does is she she takes the central place in the house which is still Fulmuk's place so I'm not saying Fulmuk's right but she's an interesting character <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did wonder what happened to her. Oh, well, there is a later addition that at the end um, she's, you know, she's uh, on in Mother's Palace and later on it's attacked and destroyed and she dies in the fire of the trees. But I get a feeling that's an add-on because somebody decided that a woman who's done that has to have an evil ending. But I don't think it's in the original. Well, you, you mentioned Fand earlier on, and Aideen is referred to uh, in one of the poems as part of the original story as Bayfin. She said that she is herself Bayfin. So there you are. She is another of Fan, Bayfin, Liban. They're all representational of the flow of fertility and prosperity that's only maintained when the door between the two worlds is kept open. So it's her job to be always there as a symbol of of fertility and prosperity. But as you notice with Fan, that doesn't stop her having agency. You know, if things go wrong, her being there is trouble for everyone in itself. And um, and remember, in the old Irish stories, the protection of acknowledgement of women is central. And the whole toying is about what happens if you don't respect the birth rules covering women, as in the story of Maka. Um, well, if you don't obey these nat nat natural rules or natural laws, then fertility and prosperity fail fails. So if you don't if you don't respect your women, you're going to lose the fertility and the prosperity of the land. It's that basic. So she may be a symbol, but she is central. And by the way, I love your uh, Phil game illustration. I think that's really fun. I was thinking about, you know, the, the Lewis chessmen, how they were carved and I thought maybe it would be something we carved um, pieces like that. I, we don't know exactly what Fihil was played with or how it was played. It's a chess-like game, but it would have been an asymmetric game rather than chess, which has a symmetrical pattern of pieces. So they were more um, on one side than the other. It was more of a strategy game. But um, it doesn't matter because that's the modern game we would recognise that... that uh, yeah, I did wonder. Look, I did do a, a, a the tiny miniature and I did research and I thought, actually, it has to look like a standard chessboard so that everyone knows what it what we're kind of and in with. many ways, that whole story is a game of chess. It's about you make your move, I'll make mine. I'll 
I'll make a move which is slightly has slightly more jeopardy and you have to respond to it. It's the whole story is a bit of a game of chess. And eventually Aideen is taken across the board, just like Alice and Alison through the looking glass, until she ends up the other one and she goes back to being the other world symbol that she is. In other words, you know, as Alice becomes a queen and sets everything to right, you know, it's about getting to the eighth square. So in some ways it's a it has something of the same quality about it. Aideen goes all the way through the process. So I think a game of chess is perfectly relevant there. <laughs> I love it. And it's just a, such a lovely picture. Now, while we're still talking about your pictures, I was just going to go back to that uh, uh, picture from one of your exhibitions. And you actually created a picture of the Library of Perplexing Perplexities. Um, can you tell me about that one? Um, that one, well, it's part of a series of illustrations that are essentially telling the story of Juniper, which I started creating it for a group exhibition called Once Upon a Time, and that was in the Rowe Valley Arts and Cultural Centre in Limavady, and it was Desima Conley who um, curated it. And so it was the first time I'd ha ever had work selected for an exhibition, and I didn't have to put in like the, the pieces that I proposed like I'd say I didn't really want to put them in because they didn't really connect to each other so that's when I thought like I need to create my own story and create the, the, the and to explain it visually so it's telling a story but visually and the library is part of that although actually it wasn't part of the first few images it, it actually took those years I was just adding to it I it think. deserves a story it really does I mean I, I want to go to the library of perplexing perplexities it's it, Oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Immediately, I'm seeing it was a wonderful title for a book of short stories where they're all perplexing perplexities. <laughs> I think that there's so many ideas there. You, What would you find in that library? How would they appear? And it goes right back to the the paradox of your two worlds in, um, you know, in the Garden of Cake. It's... The, the the perplexity of the world of the adult, which is so bizarre as the fish flying across the, the road of the sky, and that safe but dangerous underworld forest, you know, I, that's a perplexing perplexity. Yeah, I suppose it is the same world. And it seems to be tied up to something <sighs> you did much earlier. I think it's great. It's about time you wrote the book which you, you know, wrote your own stories and illustrated your own stories. I think you've really got something there and I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, the book well, published. Well, I have written bits of it, but it's, I'm kind of, I dip my toe into it and then I sort of come away from it and I'm sort of afraid to see how it might turn out, but it, it might happen and it might not, I don't know. Well, I think it would be a great project. And it's interesting, what in talking to you, what I'm really seeing that you are a gifted storyteller who uh, tells your stories through pictures. And, and I think we have something in common because over the years I've discovered that my obsession seems to be focused on borders, edges, transitions, the spaces between. And... Yeah, I know I commented on that in terms of your animation, The Forest of Cake. But I suppose basically uh, that's what artists do. It's certainly what you do. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, um, yeah, I suppose one of the things that I try and think about when I'm creating an illustration is to think, I'll try and imagine it from different viewpoints. 
and um, because that's well it makes all the difference really I I just want to say again I think you're a gifted storyteller in pictures and thank you for holding (laughs) a conversation with me so thank you very much Shona thank you for listening to this stories in the landscape conversation remember on www.storyarchaeology.com you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.